John the Baptist. And we know we call him John the Baptist not because he was a part of the Baptist church or the Baptist denomination, but John would baptize people in a baptism of repentance. He uh, was the forerunner for Jesus. He was the one that God uh, sent to prepare the way for people to hear the message that Jesus would have to present, and uh, John prepared the way. And so we read about John's ministry, and, and we appreciate all the things that John does uh, in preparing the way for the Lord. And uh, as Haynes said last week, Jesus said, you know, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. So that's a very powerful statement that Jesus made. Um, and I think there's so much we can learn from the life of John the Baptist. So this week we're going to continue on with that theme, uh, looking at the life of John the Baptist and learning from what he said, what he did, how he lived. But really we're going to focus on one thing this morning, uh, and that was something that he said. And so let me give you the context. This is in John chapter 3. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn to John chapter 3, you're welcome to do that. If not, just listen along. But we know in John 3, that's probably one of the most familiar verses in verse 16 uh, in all of Christianity. And uh, so John is talking, uh, Jesus is talking about salvation. And then later on in that chapter, we start finding out about something that happens in the life of John the Baptist in his ministry. So in verse 22 of John chapter 3, we see that uh, John is, um, uh, we know he has this powerful ministry and, and the multitudes are following John. They're coming to be baptized by John. And uh, Pharisees are coming, religious leaders are coming, soldiers are coming, sinners are coming. A lot of people are coming to listen to John baptize, uh, listen to him preach, teach, and also baptize. And so Jesus and his disciples, so at this time in, in John's, not John the Baptist wrote John, but the book of John. But in this chapter, we see um, Jesus has started his public ministry, and there's crowds following Jesus. And so Jesus is going south of the Sea of Galilee. So if you look at a map of Israel, you've got the Sea of Galilee in the north, and you've got the Dead Sea in the south. And there's about a 70-mile stretch between the two bodies of water. And there's a river that connects the two, and that's the Jordan River. And so about 25 miles south of Jordan, John is baptizing people. And, uh, and some of his followers come up to him and say to him, that Jesus, the one you've been talking about, John, the one you've been pointing to, has a following, and people are being baptized by him. Now, later on, you see that Jesus wasn't actually physically doing the baptizing. His disciples were, but John's followers are saying, there's so many people hanging out with Jesus. What do we do? What are you going to do about it? And John said, listen, I've already told you I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one that everybody's looking for. Jesus is. So I've been pointing you to Jesus this whole time. And so he talks about the fact that he is celebrating the ministry of Jesus. And then he says this, and this is a scripture we're going to uh, reference this morning. It's just one verse. Chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist says this, He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. So when John says this, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus must increase, and I, John the Baptist, must decrease. Now what he's saying there is a literal understanding of the fact that Jesus' ministry is going to blossom and grow, and my time on this earth to prepare the way is coming to a close because Jesus is here. So the things that I have to do for God's kingdom, the things that God has, has ordained me to do, they're going to start decreasing 
Because more and more people are now finding out that the one I've been telling them about is actually walking the earth and talking and preaching and teaching. So that's literally what he means, that, that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. But we also know, understanding the Christian doctrines, that there's more to this one sentence that John says than just this literal understanding of the ministries of Jesus and the ministry of John. One of the things that we understand and know for sure is that this principle of Jesus increasing and us decreasing has to do with our spiritual maturity, our growth in the Christian faith. And so this should be our, this should be our hope. This should be our understanding. This should be what we embrace. And that is that Jesus in our lives has to increase. And we have to decrease. More of Jesus, less of me. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what that means. This is not what it means. It doesn't mean you, who you are as a person, has to decrease. Because, see, God creates each one of us. We sing about how God created the stars, and the stars are there, and they testify of God's majesty, and they worship. We are created for God's glory, and we are put on this earth for a certain time in history, at a certain point in history, at a certain location on the planet. And God thinks that up, creates that, and it's for his glory. So there's nobody like you in the entire world. Even if you have an identical twin, there's nobody like you in the entire world. God chose to create you the way you are, and he's given each one of us talent, gifts, abilities, things that drive us. And so each one of us are different, and God did that for a purpose. But here's the problem that we live in, and it happened with Adam and Eve for the first humans on the planet. Sin has marred our planet. And because of the influence of unrighteousness and bad things, our world is tainted in a negative way. So even though God's created each one of you and, he, and me included, even though we're in this wonderful time in history, we live in a sinful world, don't we? We just do. That's the problem. We live in a sinful world and we know that. And so when we come on the scene and we start growing and maturing and things like that, we're going to pick up, because of just this world, bad habits, bad tendencies, uh, ment mindsets and mentalities that, that are hostile toward God and, and don't, don't glorify God. That's just the world we live in. And so when the world is described in biblical terms and, and, and Christian terms, there's a part of it, you know, we talk about the planet Earth, the world, but Paul talks about, in a spiritual sense, the world. And he talks about, don't let, let the world uh, consume you and you be a part of the world. And what he means by that is, is not the planet Earth, but men and women who aren't under the sovereignty of God and under the lordship of Jesus and how we, as sinful people, just tend to live our lives. It's a worldly system where God is not the center and the Lord of that universe. And that's the world. And so this idea of the flesh in the world is something the New Testament writers talk about. So because we live in a sinful world, we got to be aware of the tendencies we pick up just because of where we live. Now, let me give you an example, a couple examples. Uh, Paul knows about this, and he writes to the church in Corinth, and this is 1 Corinthians 15.33. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says this, Bad company corrupts good morals. He just said bad company corrupts good morals. So if you have good morals, in other words, you do things, you make good decisions, you're holy and you're righteous and you're, you want to serve God, and you hang around with, with bad people, 
they're going to rub off on you. That's just the natural tendency. And, and, and staying in bad company corrupts you. It just, it just happens. Uh, the writer of Proverbs says this. This is in Proverbs 22, 24, and 25. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man. Now, we can say man or woman. So don't associate with someone who's given to anger or someone who is hot-tempered. Or you will learn their ways and find a snare for yourself. So this idea of, you know, let's say you don't have much of a temper, but you hang out with somebody who does have a hot temper. Man, in a split second, they're going to get angry and they're just going to, oh. Guess what? You're going to learn that tendency. And you might not pick up it on first, but you will. And let me give you a perfect example of this in my life. So um, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time at this point in my life, and I'm actually in seminary. I'm, I'm, I'm going to seminary and uh, learning to be a minister and learning all that, and just loving, loving, loving. And so a guy says, Magoni, I found out that you love to play golf. I said, yeah, I like playing golf. I've been playing golf for a while. And he said, you need to meet Sam because Sam plays golf all the time. So I meet Sam, and sure enough, we hit it off. We become best friends. We start playing golf. We play a lot of golf together those three and a half years that, that I'm in seminary. So much so that we continue to play golf to this day. He's in the North Georgia Conference. He's a minister. And uh, we play golf on a regular two times a year. We get away for a golf weekend. I'll talk about that later on when I talk about uh, how we grow in our faith. So Sam and I are playing golf. Now, Sam, I love this guy. He's my dear. He's one of my best friends in the world. But when Sam hits a bad golf shot, and we all do, he gets mad. Griff, he doesn't cuss, but this is what Sam would do. He would say this, Goodness! Now, that's his Christian way of, he said goodness, but he says it with, the, with the, you know, like when you cuss sometimes, you just, well, when people cuss sometimes, they just say things with passion. You know what I'm saying? You know, and so he would get mad. He'd say, goodness. And sometimes he'd do this. Sometimes he'd stomp his feet. And sometimes he'd take his club and slam it into the ground. Now, as long as I've been playing golf, I don't ever slam my clubs in the ground. Why do you slam your clubs? You don't do that. You just don't do that. So when I hit a bad shot, I'm thinking, man, what am I going to do on this next shot? Oh, my gosh. You know, I put myself in a bad situation. That's my normal process. I'm playing golf with Sam week in, week out, month in, month out. I'm seeing Sam slam his club down, saying, goodness. Well, one time I'm sitting there. Cam, I, I got a five-iron distance, and the green is wide open. I've been playing good that day, you know, and I'm just, I'm just feeling it. And so I grab my five-iron Kamari, I get there, and I put, you know, put the club down. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, oh, this is going to be such a sweet shot. I've been hitting my iron so good that day. Oh, rubbing it in because Sam hadn't been playing good, and so I, I, he's already steaming. So I get there. Oh, I'm fixing it. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to just rattle that pin. And I go back, and I stab it right in the ground. It's a terrible swing. My five iron, I usually, oh, I hit that so sweet. And guess what I do? I say, goodness, and I slam my five iron in the ground, and I, I dig a big hole in the ground. Now, in Kentucky, where we live, south of Lexington, where the seminary was that we attended, Asbury, there's more rocks in the ground than dirt. I mean, there's rocks everywhere, and they build beautiful fences and, and that out of these rocks. So when I slam it down, it's like, oh, Lord, and I pull my club up, and the hosel has these massive gashes in it. And I felt like the Lord said, see, that's what you get for getting angry. and slept. You know, I just destroyed my club. I was like, ah. So don't hang out with a hot-tempered man or you'll learn their ways, right? Now, I keep hanging out with Sam, but I've had to learn that, that we have this, 
we live in a world where we're, where we're influenced by bad things many times. And it could be Christian people that have bad habits, and we still learn them. So we've got to understand that. So when you and I become a Christian, the Bible talks about us being just like in the natural sense. When we're born, we're, we come into this world as an infant, don't we? We do, babies. And we grow and we mature because we get food, we get nourishment, time, all that kind of stuff. And so there's a maturing process physically for us as human beings. In the spiritual sense, it's the same way. When you and I have our faith placed completely in Jesus, we trust him for our salvation, we repent of our sins, and he comes to be the Lord of our lives, and we now make a decision that we're going to walk with him. The Bible says we are born again to a living hope. And so we're, we're, we're Christians, but we're baby Christians. And Paul writes to several, several churches in the New Testament, and he talks about this idea of being an infant. And, uh, and so you see that in 1 Corinthians, when he, when, and this is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And Paul's talking to the church, and he's, he's kind of reprimanding me, saying, listen, I should be able to speak to you as spiritual men and women with a depth in your faith, but you don't have that because you're walking as infants. But the, the, the implication is you've been walking with the Lord a long time. You guys should be more mature, but you're still infants. And here's how I know you're infants, Paul says, is because there's quarrels among you. There's, there's, there's factions and there's all kind of, there's no harmony going on. In this. And you've been walking with the Lord a long time. You shouldn't allow how the world treats one another to creep in. And that's how you treat one another. We should be embracing the truths of Christ and growing in our maturity and not treating one another like the world treats each other. Does that make sense? The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. And this is in Hebrews 5, 12 and 14. Hebrews 5. And he talks to the, the, the readers of this letter and he talks about how they should be teachers by now. But because they haven't matured and they haven't been growing in their faith, they're still infants in their faith. Needing milk not solid food. And so when a baby's born, we, we give babies milk. Uh, and so that's a part of their growing process. Um, and so when you're a baby Christian, yeah, there's, there's, there's basic Christian principles that we need to be embracing and understanding, love and all these kind of things, and we start growing. It's like milk. It's, it's just it's basic things. But then when you grow, and, and as we grow as humans, our digestive system gets better, and we're able to digest solid foods and those kind of things. And so that's important to understand spiritually. Peter writes this, and this is in 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. Uh, he talks about, therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and strife, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So this whole idea of growing in our faith and maturing in our faith is so important because we're all starting off as infants. And here's the problem. Many times we remain as infants in our faith. We're not growing and maturing. It happened back in the New Testament times. It still happens today. So what do we need to do to grow in our faith? What are those things that you and I need to do to be spiritually mature? Now, if I ask you this question and I ask you to raise your hand and tell me, you guys would know the answer. You guys would know that. Okay, so we're going to do that. Since I, I, you know, my tendency with you guys is to ask you a question, you guys answer. 
You know, okay, now I'm going to put you back on the spot. So what are some things, and I've got a whole things list down, so if you don't think of anything, I've got the answers. But don't worry about that, because I know you've got the answer. Why? Because you've been walking with the Lord. So think about this. What's the answer to this question? If you had to answer it, what do you and I need to do to grow in our faith? What do we need to do to mature and not stay infants? What do we need? Raise your hand if you want. Yes, ma'am. we got to be reading the Word, right? The Bible is so important. Read the word. What's another thing? Yes. Spend time in prayer. So speaking and listening. Exactly. Spending time in prayer. Not only speaking to God, but, but waiting on the Lord to speak to us. That's a spiritual discipline. And we get our ears attuned to hearing his voice. So it won't let that intimidate you. But as an infant, it's hard to hear the voice of the Lord. But the longer you're there, the more time you spend with God, the easier it is to pick up. And babies know their parents' voices, don't they? They just do. Yes, somebody else had a hand. Yes. Yeah, a willingness to do what God asks us to do. So we're not stubborn. We don't think of a, uh, that, that we know what is best. We know that God knows what's best. So there's this maturing process where we're willing to do what God asks us to do. And we know that his will is better than our will. There's a few other things. What are some things that come to your mind? Yes, ma'am. Loving people, loving your neighbor, the way Jesus loved us. So as you're doing that, you and I are going to grow in our faith. These are things we know to do. These are things that the Bible helps us understand to do. There's some other things. Who else? Two more. I'm going to do more. What are some other things? Anybody else? Yes. Yeah, being in fellowship. Bad company corrupts good morals, right? But if you're in good fellowship, if you come to church and you're around Christians, you're going to grow in your faith. Now, there is a balance to this. Um, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they fussed at Jesus. It's a South Georgia term, fussed at him. But, but they were irritated with Jesus because he spent time with sinners. And they were wondering, why would this man of, of great uh, dignity, why would this man of great holiness and moral purity, why would he spend time with folks that don't walk with God? Because bad company corrupts good morals, right? Birds of a feather do what? flock together. So if you're spending time hanging out with a certain group of people, then people will associate the characteristics of that group with you. You're guilty by association because you tend to things rub out. And Jesus helped us understand, and Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth, helps us understand this balance. We have to spend time with Christians. No question about it. Strengthen our faith. That helps us grow in maturity, discipleship. But if that's the only group you and I spend time with, then we're missing opportunities to advance the kingdom of God and see people come to faith in Christ. That's why we're doing Food Truck Fest. One of the reasons. It's a bridge event to help our community come on campus and for us to be able to spend time, meet new friends. Maybe they're not walking with the Lord. Maybe they don't have a church family. And we want to be able to expand our friend base and people that we know. So we have to spend time with folks that don't know the Lord because that's a part of what God's called us to do is to speak the God good news. And so there's a balance. So if all your friends are Christians, then what God might start challenging you to do is spend time with somebody that doesn't know the Lord. Do that. And so not because they're going to corrupt you and it's like, oh, man, I can't do that because I, you know, I don't want to learn their ways. Well, you, if you're mature in the faith, you realize, yeah, don't, don't slam your golf glove down. Even if a fellow minister does that, you don't do that kind of thing. You start learning how to balance that. But, but there's a balance between spending time with Christians and, and spending time with folks that don't know the Lord. So you've got to do both. So that, that's a good balance. But spending time in the church. All right, so there's so many other things. And we know these, right? We know what they are. And here's a problem. Here's a dilemma. Why aren't we 
doing these things we know to do. So many times we aren't doing these things. We should do them, and sometimes we do them for a period of time, and sometimes we struggle, but why aren't we maturing? Why aren't we growing in the faith the way we know we should? And what will help us grow? What's going to help me to grow in my faith? And I want to lift up to you one thing this morning, out of all the possibilities, one thing, and that is for me what's helped me grow, what helped me stay consistent, what helps me uh, mature in the faith more than anything else, doing, doing these things I know I'm supposed to do, is this. Accountability. Accountability. When I introduce accountability in my life, then I have this consistency in my growth and in my faith and in my understanding and in lots of areas of my life. So the beauty of accountability is something that we have to embrace when it comes to us doing what John the Baptist said, and that is letting Jesus increase and letting us decrease. So the thing that decreases in our life, when I start off saying I don't want you to, to misunderstand what, what decreases in our life, less of me, is less of this sinfulness, less of these habits, less of the influence of the world that's crept in in our thinking and our actions and our attitudes toward things. And the more Jesus increases, the more we recognize these things that we've got to get out of our life to remove from who we are and what we think and how we live. And he becomes more. People see more of Jesus in us because there's less of the, 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 the rotten stuff in our life. So accountability is so important. And there's lots of types of accountability in your life and in my life already right now. This thing I'm wearing on my wrist. How many people know what this is? Yeah, it's a Fitbit. So a couple of Christmases ago, our three daughters gave Fran and me for Christmas a Fitbit because they wanted us to stay healthy. And so this Fitbit is a, a type of accountability for me. There's a goal to have so many steps per day, and the goal for me is 10,000 steps. Some people have more, some people have less. This is kind of designed for 10,000 steps. So when I reach 10,000 steps for the day, guess what this thing does? There's this little display, Kamari, and it's like, it's, it's like a, 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 what do you call it, fireworks. And it vibrates, and there's a fire. It's like, celebrate, you've done 10,000 steps. Ah! So that's, that's kind of cool. But the way they want me to get to 10,000 steps is by keeping me accountable for what happens every hour from 9 o'clock till 5 o'clock. So at 10 till the hour, guess what this thing does? It goes off. And I look down at it because it's vibrating, and it will tell me if I haven't reached 250 steps for that hour, it tells me how many steps I need to get up and walk to reach 250. So if you're doing 250 steps from 9 to 5, you don't reach 10,000 steps, but you're well on your way. So at 10 till, I'm looking at, oh, my gosh, i got to do 149. <laughs> I've been sitting at my desk working. I still got to, so I get accountability. Get up and walk. So I get up and I walk around. I go to the sanctuary. I start, you know, doing these things. I get my 20, 250 steps in for the day. So that's the source of accountability. How many of you guys have ever had somebody come over to your house for a party or for an activity? Raise your hand if you've hosted something at your house. Okay, so what do you do before you have company come to your house? What do you do? You clean, right? You clean. That's account of a, sort of accountability. Now, uh, when Fran and I lived in Warner Robins, we had a, a group meet in our home every week. We had a weekly uh, community group that met in our home. And so every week, you know, we had to make sure the house was clean. And sometimes we would laugh. We would say, aren't we glad that we have a group coming in our house every week? Because it keeps us accountable to 
to have the house clean and neat and straight. Now, we're both neat people. We don't like to be messy. But the bottom line, if we didn't have a group meeting in our house every week, guess what? Do you think we would dust as much as we dusted? No, probably wouldn't. You think we'd have the house as straight as we had? No, we probably wouldn't. But that accountability kept us doing that. It's very, very important. There's other ways that we see accountability. You know, I'm looking at Carson. So if you play sports, if you're involved with some kind of competition, that's a type of accountability because you know you got a game coming up. And so if you're not practicing, if you're not working, if you're not uh, having to answer to the, the, the disciplines of that sport, when you play the game, when you've got the competition, you're going to be embarrassed. You're going to lose. Who knows what's going to happen? But that, that almost like a test, almost like a game, those types of things in our lives help us be accountable. That's a part of accountability. It's not the only part of accountability, but, but it's a, a, there's an aspect of accountability in that. You know you've got a test coming up. Our daughter Katie, our youngest daughter, when she was, uh, she had graduated, gotten her, her uh, she'd finished her doctoral program, and she had to wait to take the test, the bar test, to be able to be a physical therapist and to be able to practice. So she was studying for the bar. She had about two and a half months to do that. Because that test was looming out in the future, and she knew if she didn't pass it, then she, you know, yeah, she's got a doctorate in physical therapy, but she can't practice physical therapy. You know, whoopee-doo, you got a, you got a degree, what you, but now you can't practice. So there was this accountability. You got to pass the test to be able to practice legally. And so she, that drove her, that motivated her. That was the thing, you know, why, what's, what's going to help us grow in our faith? Accountability. So when we have that, it's so, so important. So for me, there's lots of areas of accountability. So I want us to think about our spiritual growth as we close. And what can you and I do to embrace accountability to help us grow? I mentioned Sam to you earlier. Sam and I still get together. We get together twice a year for a golf weekend. It's a three-day weekend. We play golf, and there's some other guys that join us every year. But we've been doing this since the, the late 1990s. And we get together, and part of the accountability of that weekend for us growing spiritually is this. We get to ask each other tough questions. How are you doing spiritually? How are you doing morally? How are you doing with your family? Are you being a good husband? Are you being a good daddy? You know, some of us are, are in, the, in the ministry. You know, are you faithful to serve your church? We got guys that do work construction. We got guys that, one guy's a psychiatrist. We've got all kinds of guys that are playing golf with us. And we get to ask each other tough questions because we care for one another and we know that there's, it's a safe place and we pray for one another. And when we come to those golf weekends, we have a good time laughing at each other playing golf. But we also know there's a spiritual component that, that we crave and we desire and we want. And we look each other in the eye and we, nobody can lie. If you get lie, they, they call you out on it. Our Romeos is a, another great group of men. That they're retired men eating out, or tired old men eating out. <laughs> but anyway, they meet every Tuesday morning. And, uh, and the guy who leads that is a retired minister, John Carroll. And one of the things John Carroll does as far as accountability, he goes around and asks everyone, how are they doing? And it's really physically because these, these guys are retired and they're aging, and so they spend more time with the doctors than they want to. And he says, how are you doing? You know, because he wants to know how they're doing. And then sometimes it's how's your spouse doing because he knows and we know that some of the, the, their wives are going to the hospital and things like that. But he holds them accountable. And if a guy says, I'm fine, and John knows or not, he goes, don't lie to us. He will say that. Last week we had 31 men in that room, and he, he, he'd point you out. Don't lie to me. Tell me the truth. And then spiritually he does a Bible study and different things like that. And then we have a speaker. It's just a lot of fun. But the bottom line is John cares enough about people to hold them accountable. And it's really neat. So is there somebody in your life? I know uh, years ago when I 
was an associate pastor. There was another minister in the town, and we would get together every Friday. We'd spend some time together. We'd go eat lunch together. But he was somebody that could keep me accountable, somebody that I could talk to, somebody that I could ask questions to, and he could ask questions to me, and it was just a wonderful uh, a person to hold me accountable. Now, you might say, well, Mark, you know, I'm married. Maybe my wife or my husband could be my accountability partner. Now, they can to a degree. I know Fran, so uh, one of the things that she does for me that keeps me accountable, sometimes if I just, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm, not, I'm not really living the way I ought to live, and sometimes I get cranky or maybe, maybe I snap at her quickly or, or I'm just not doing, doing well, she'll ask me one question. And all she has to do is ask me this one question. She'll ask me, have you been in the Word lately? You've been in the Word lately? In other words, Mark, are you reading your Bible because you're not acting very much like Jesus kind of thing? That's what she means. So have you been in the Word? And that keeps me accountable because if I'm not reading the Bible, if I'm not spending time with the Lord, it, it affects how I live. And for the most part, I'm a nice guy. You know, I'm happy-go-lucky. You know, I'm in, you know but, but, but maybe I'm quick to react in a negative way or, or maybe I'm a little sharp here on something. And, and, and I'm just, Jesus isn't the Lord of my life. So she does keep me accountable. She goes, have you been in the Word lately? And I know that means that's code for you are not acting like Jesus, and you need to go spend time with him. Because good company helps us have good morals. And when we spend time with Jesus, whew, that just makes us better. Amen. So who could be in your life? And it could be your spouse. But, but sometimes we, as I'm looking out, I know some of you guys are in small groups. And, and that's, that's a wonderful opportunity to grow in your faith. But can somebody that you know hold you accountable to grow spiritually? And it doesn't mean they have to get into your business and always be mean. But accountability is so, so important for allowing Jesus to increase and for us to decrease. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.